Hello and welcome to this week's Sport Zone on Salford City Radio. I'm Rob Parkinson and we're here talking all things sport in Salford. Joining the show this week, as ever, we have Jane Sweetening from the Sweetening Salford podcast. How's your week been, mate? Yeah, terrific week, Rob, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking forward to all the sport this weekend and it's a pleasure to be able to break it down with you. Yeah, we've got lots and lots to talk about. I'm going to, going to start with the boxing, James. It's been a strange week for boxing. Arguably the greatest of all time, Floyd Mayweather, has stepped back into the ring to take on a YouTuber. What on earth is going on? Oh, it's utterly mental, isn't it, Rob? Floyd Mayweather is one of the greatest, not just boxers, but athletes who has ever lived. I mean, 50-0, the highest paid sports star the world has ever seen. And this weekend, he's taken on... A YouTuber. I mean, it was ridiculous when he fought Conor McGregor and brought him into the world of uh, boxing. But at least he had some sort of, you know, combat sports background at a high level. I mean, Logan Paul is just a YouTuber, essentially. And yes, he's got an athletic frame. And I think he did a bit of wrestling at high school and college and got to a decent standard there. But he's not operating anywhere near the level of a Floyd Mayweather. And in the world of boxing, he's had one professional fight against another YouTuber and he lost it. So the fact that he's got this opportunity against Floyd Mayweather sort of sums the position that boxing's in at the moment, I suppose, where it's what pumps bums on seats, what gets people talking. And weirdly, this matchup, which is a complete mismatch on paper between Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul, is attracting more interest than, you know, world championship level fights. It's very strange, but Floyd Mayweather has always been about a pound note. Logan Paul is also about a pound note. And they've come together and put on this spectacle, this, I suppose, almost, you know, freak show. And I assume it'll do very well. I mean, it's on Sky Sports box office. I mean, Sky have been turning down fights left, right and centre. I mean, the Josh Taylor-Jose Ramirez fight uh, last weekend, you know, a unification for every single belt in the super lightweight division. Sky turned that one down. But they'll happily broadcast Logan Paul versus Floyd Mayweather. So I suppose it's a business decision. People will tune in, but I don't know whether it's good for the sport or not. Yeah, Logan Paul will have an eight-inch height ad- advantage and 65-pound fa- weight advantage. Would that make a difference, James? Well, I mean, Rob, it's a humongous advantage, isn't it, in both height and weight. I mean, Flume is a quite a small individual, whereas Logan Paul is massive. He's a proper, you know, American jock-type character. Very big man, very strong man, very athletic man. But there's still levels to this game. And somebody who's had one pro boxing fight and lost it, I don't care how big he is, how strong he is, how athletic he is. It's not going to be enough to beat the greatest fighter who's ever lived in Floyd Mayweather. And yes, admittedly, he's 44 years old, Floyd, but he's still going to be able to find a way. I think he'll win this one relatively comfortably. I think if he goes for the stoppage, he'll be able to get it in a couple of rounds. Logan Paul, a big guy, might be able to take a few of the punches, but Floyd Mayweather's boxing IQ is is far and beyond what Logan Paul could ever hope to achieve in that regard. So I think Floyd Mayweather still pieces him up, and it's up to him as to what stage he stops the fight. Does he want to play up to the crowd, like I think he did with Conor McGregor at certain points, or is he just going to want to stop Logan Paul early? I mean, some people recall there was that instant with uh, Logan Paul's brother, Jake Paul, who stole Floyd Mayweather's hat, and Floyd seemed extremely riled up, even more riled up than he was in the Conor McGregor fight. So maybe he will look for the stoppage, and if he does, I think he'll get it. Yeah, Daniel Dubois returns to the ring on Saturday night. What's his opponent like? His opponent's Bogdan Dinu. Uh... A decent level fighter, had a good amateur career, hasn't particularly achieved much as a pro. He's got two losses on his record, one to Jarrell Miller and one to Kubrat Pulev. He actually pushed Pulev very close, and people remember Pulev, of course, from fighting the likes of Anthony Joshua, Huey Fury, Derek Chisora, Vladimir Klitschko, etc. He's a decent little fighter, Bogdan Dini, but he's lacked heart. He's got the skill, but he's not got that desire. Against Jarrell Miller, you know, 
it can be said that, you know, really, he, he gave up, essentially. And some people also accused Daniel Dubois of doing that in his last fight against Joe Joyce. But I don't think Bogdan Dean is going to be capable of forcing Daniel Dubois down that dark path, the same one that Joe Joyce did. I see Bogdan Dino getting hit hard, getting hit early. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he has a couple of rounds of success here and there. But I do think Bogdan Dino will be stopped in this one. Are you a fan of the inter- interim world title, which will be on the line, James? I think it's an utterly mental decision to put an interim world title on the line. Bogdan Dino and Daniel Dubois are both coming off losses. How on earth can they be fighting for an interim world title? It's utterly ridiculous. The World Boxing Association at the moment have been an absolute shambles, to be honest with you, Rob. Throwing out belts like they're going out of fashion. I mean, it's almost like picking one up in you know one of those arcade machines. They seem to be that frequent. They're just everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> so uh, I think it's a terrible decision to put an interim belt on the line. And the point of an interim belt, it's meant to be there when the world champion is inactive. So somebody comes in, wins that world title, and then at some point down the road, unifies it with the the real world champion when he comes back out from an injury or whatever it was that was keeping him outside the ring. The world champion of the WBA, Anthony Josh, was out there and fighting. He's got a fight booked uh, for the near future against Alexander Usyk or Andy Ruiz or somebody like that. So there's absolutely no need for an interim world title on this occasion. I think it's utterly ridiculous, but it's the WBA throwing out more and more and more ridiculous decisions and they're beginning to come a bit of a shell of boxing. So to answer your question, Rob, no, I think it's a ridiculous decision. Tommy Fiore features on the undercard, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Tommy Fury, one of the hottest prospects in British boxing. A great young talent. Got a lot of eyes on him through Love Island and things like that. It was rumoured that he was going to be getting in the ring with a man who was 0-14. And that's not good at all. Tommy Fury, every single opponent he's been in the ring with, has had a, a big losing record. A very big losing record. His level of opponent so far has been terrible. And I think it sort of almost disrespects him because he's not a bad fighter by any stretch. We need to get him in with fighters with winning records now. A 0-14 man isn't good enough. And Frank Warren has apparently said that this 0-14 opponent was never actually in the pipeline. But I feel like that may have just been because there's a bit of such a big backlash over that opponent. So Tommy Fury, hopefully, he's fighting on Saturday. He's running out of time to bag an opponent. But hopefully... They get one in late, and hopefully, I mean, at this stage, it's only a sixth fight. We don't need to push on too quickly, but they at least need to have a winning record for me, Rob. On Saturday night, the Filipino Flash claimed yet another world title. He just keeps rolling back the ears, doesn't he, James? Oh, he does, Rob. It's incredible to watch. I mean, this man was past his prime about 10 years ago, it feels like, and he keeps winning fights. He keeps finding a way. And I think it was against Carl Frampton in Belfast. I think they fought at featherweight. And it seemed that night as if, although he had his moments, Nonito Denaire, it seemed like he was past it and that was going to be it. And when he signed up to the World Boxing Super Series at Bantamweight, two weight divisions below, I think people were fearing for him. I think it was like, is he going to be able to get back down to that weight safely? I think most people expected him to go out in the first round. So when he beat Ryan Burnett, albeit down to injury, but when he beat Ryan Burnett, everybody was surprised. He picked up a world title there and people were happy for him as the nice man he was, but he almost won that world title by default. So when he advanced past the semi-final, that was even more impressive. He fought in the final against Nui and Oui. He was knocking out absolutely everybody. And they put on an absolute war, and it was fantastic. And that looked like it could have been Nenito Nair's last stand. So the fact that he's come back, he's fought a WBC world champion in Nordina Bali, and absolutely obliterated him in just four rounds, shows just how legendary this man is at 30 years of age, to win a yet another world title against somebody in the prime of the career. And for me, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. One of Americans' best young stars put on a good performance against one of our generation's best talents. Tell us all about that. Yeah, Jorge Linares, one of the fighters of our generation, 
unbelievable hand speed. We've seen him against Brits, the likes of Anthony Crawler, Kevin Mitchell, uh, and Luke Campbell. I had the honour of seeing him fight Anthony Crawler twice in person at the Manchester and Evening News, and he's utterly fantastic to watch. He, he's just like poetry in motion, Jorge Linares. He's brilliant. And albeit past his best, it's still a good scout to get on your record. So the fact that Devin Haney beat him is good for him. It's by far the best name on his resume. Jorge Linares hurt him, I think, in the 10th round. And Devin Haney was able to see it through, get the win. He should be very happy with that opponent, uh, that win. It's the best of his career by far. And hopefully now he can push on to some bigger fights. Yeah, Lucas Brown returns in July against an unbeaten German knockout artist. Is this a mad move for the Australian? Yeah, most definitely, Rob. I mean, we talked about Lucas Brown being a former world champion. And when he went into that fight with Paul Gallen, the rugby player, most of us expected maybe Lucas Brown to win. So the fact that Paul Gallen absolutely dismantled Lucas Brown shows just what a state the Australian's in at the moment. He's by far past his best. I mean, I've seen over-the-hill fighters, but Lucas Brown is the definition of shot. There's absolutely nothing else he can rinse out of the detail. There's nothing He's given it absolutely everything and there's nothing left to give from that tank. He can't go to the well. There's no water left in it. So the fact that he's back in action, he's taking on an opponent next up that's you know probably even better than Paul Gallen in a 6-0 knockout artist from Germany, it just screams him getting knocked out again. And my fear is that Brown is just going to keep losing fights. I mean, the man's got mental health issues and these losses can't be good for him. And for somebody who was used to being a hard man, whether it be on the doors as a bouncer, all throughout his career, is, you know, he was an unbeaten knockout artist and world champion at one point, Rob. Let's not forget that. Now he's past his best. And I think somebody really needs to have a word now because his health is far more important. And, you know, he'll end up drinking for his story if somebody doesn't get involved and say, Lucas, enough's enough. There's been a steroid scandal against one of the best light heavyweights in the world. What What's all that about, James? Jane Pascal, uh, a great light heavyweight of the past, I suppose, 10 years, multiple world title winners. He's had legendary fights with the likes of Blue Jack. Carl Froch, Sergey Kovalev, etc. He's been in so many wars and he's a very well-respected fighter. So the fact that he's tested positive for three separate steroids is deeply disappointing. He had a rematch schedule with Badu Jack and Jack will be annoyed that he can't get the, the chance at redemption, but he'll be even more annoyed at the fact that he lost the first fight against a man who was cheating, essentially. In every big fight that John Pascal was, we can assume that potentially he was cheating in them as well. So all these opponents will be extremely disappointed, unhappy, and Jean Pascal, with the fact that he was tested positive for three separate substances, for me, that should be a ban for life. And the final boxing question of the of the night, James. Uh, what do you make of John Fiore's comments about the fallout between his son and Anthony Joshua? Why everybody likes John Fury, Rob, for me, is that he's not a yes man. He won't just say exactly what he thinks his son wants to hear and his son's team wants to hear. He was rightly slating them. Everybody involved in the making of this Fury-Anthony Joshua fight should be held accountable for this. Because they conned the public essentially for, what, nine months trying to get this made through, like, November all the way through to now. It's just been utterly ridiculous and shambolic. There was this arbitration clause that Deontay Wilder had, and that should have been nipped in the bud in December, or we should have had the rematch with Deontay Wilder in December. The fact that it's taken this long for both men to be kept out the ring and nothing to have happened, we've just wasted 18 months' time. It's absolutely fraudulent, and I'm happy that John Fury stood up and said what's right, because it's what we're all thinking, and it shows that it's still a bit of you know validity in that Fury name, because John will say exactly what's going on. I mean, it's disappointing what's happened, but it's nice to know that somebody is still speaking the truth. I don't think it's necessarily Tyson's fault, but his team can most certainly be held accountable. But moving on now to the world of ice hockey, Robert. It's been a historic week for the GB ice hockey team. Can you tell us why? Yeah. 
great Great Britain ice hockey team won their first game in the World Championship. They beat Belarus 4-3. Uh, fantastic result uh, for Great Britain. Liam Kirk with two goals. Ben Davis uh, from our very own Manchester Storm and, and Mike Hammond also used to play for Manchester Storm, the, the goal scorers. The first win uh, in the World Championship is 1962, James. Kind of shows that... We, we aren't a major force in the world of ice hockey, but to get results against good teams like Belarus is, should be celebrated and, and shouted from the rooftop. So big well done for all the boys in, uh, in Latvia. Hopefully they can uh, you know continue uh, that good form moving forward. As you mentioned, Belarus, a good side there. So for GB to get a win over them, it's massive. They're not quite at the levels yet of the world's elite, but do you think in the coming years as ice hockey begins to build in this country, you know, we could be challenging one day? Yeah, it's all about development, James. Uh, I've watched a few games on on the Free Sports channel and the other teams just seem to be quicker and, and much more clinical in front of goal. We have we have tactics, I think, where we're kind of letting them play and kind of hitting them on the counter-attack. We know ice hockey is a very fast sport and very physical and it seems like the tactics kind of work against certain teams like Belarus to get a result there you know, against them was was fantastic. We're looking down the line, sort of the next World Championship, the next European Championships. Experiences like this is only going to benefit the, the, the squad, James, and you're kind of hoping uh, that we can continue on this on this upward projection. You know, we've not had the greatest of, of World Championships this time, but I'm sure we're, we're looking at that result against Belarus as a stepping stone going forward. Can you tell us about other key results this week, Rob? Yeah, they, they played Sweden and lost 4-1 uh, and they played Czech Republic and lost 6-1. Uh, they lost sort of four uh, of the five. But like I said, they've got some good teams in this World Championship and we, and we aren't at that standard yet. But we are learning and it's that's what it's all about. It's all about development on the ice and off the ice because I mean, ice hockey is a, a, a great sport. It's finding its feet in this country uh, with the elite league, and, and you're hoping we can continue to develop because we've got some great talent uh, in in the in the sport. Like I said, Liam Kirk's on fire. He scored, he's scored a few goals in this World Championships, uh, James. So he's going to be one to watch. I'm sure uh, the top Canadian teams will be will be looking at at him possibly uh, going over there and making a making a career out of it. But playing for Great Britain is probably one of his one of the biggest achievements in his his career, and to score all these goals in this uh, World Championships has certainly put him on. On the, on the map. That's the end of the ice hockey. Let's now talk Darts Premier League. It came to an end on Friday night and John Clayton emerged champion. A massive underdog story, James. Most certainly Johnny Clayton, a.k.a. the ferret, as he's known in darting circles. An excellent, huge underdog going into this season. If people recall, nine names were picked for the Premier League in December, with one space left. A lot of people felt that that should have gone to James Wade, but they extended it till the first tournament of the next season for the selection process, which is extremely uncommon, but they did that. And Johnny Clayton won that first tournament, and that's what bagged him his place in the Premier League. And the Masters itself was a tournament that was extended from 16 to 24 players. And Johnny Clayton, I think, was ranked about 20th at the time. And without that extension, he never would have been in it. So it's a huge butterfly effect of two or three things which resulted in Johnny Clayton even getting into the Premier League. But he got in there, and he was fantastic throughout, Rob. He came in fourth place in the league phase, which is extremely good, an extremely good finish in your first season. And he actually made history by becoming the first ever champion of the Premier League to have finished fourth in the league table. He's just coming into his prime now. He's getting better and better and better, and he's a born winner. He doesn't seem to get nervous on stage. He can hit the big scores when it matters. And I think for me, Rob, he's going to be a very tough force to beat. I mean, 
Jose de Souza is a great, a great darts player. He's absolutely bonkers, albeit. I mean, he can't count to save his life, but a great, great darts player. And the fact that Johnny Clayton was able to beat him so comfortably in that final. And Johnny Clayton had only ever won the Masters before. Jose de Souza had won the Grand Slam, so he had a much bigger tournament under his belt than Johnny Clayton did. And the fact that Clayton just, you know, seemed to breeze past him and perform not necessarily his best, but I think people often say it really sums up how good a sportsman is that they win when they're not quite operating at the highest possible level. And that's what Johnny Clayton did. I think he I think he looked absolutely superb, and I think he's going to go on to win many more majors to come. He's a two-time major winner now, and I think there'll be a third in the near future. The special one may not have been able to win the final, but he's still been incredibly exciting throughout the tournament, James. Yeah, Joe De, de Souza of Portugal, the special one. I mean, he's completely nicked that, uh, stolen that nickname from a Jose Mourinho, hasn't he? Is a Portuguese comrade. But either way, Jose de Souza, an extremely entertaining man. I remember watching him walk in to uh, the song "I Know You Want Me," and uh, just seeing a man singing "I Know You Want Me," a middle-aged man, probably about thirty odd stalls, singing "I Know You Want Me" to a crowd of British fans. It was just fantastic to see. He was fantastic. He. Doesn't seem to know how to count, uh, which isn't ideal for a darts player because he, he seems all the time. He he actually takes out shots and hits the wrong doubles and almost celebrates. And he's told by the referee, Jose, you, you've hit the wrong one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he was incredibly entertaining. He's got very... He, he's raw talent without a clue how to play the game. That's the best way I could sum up Jose D'Souza. But I think he'll be in for many a more entertaining fixture in the future. And he can win a Premier League himself one day. The raw talent's there. He's only been in the PDC, I think, for a few years. So many a more final to come for Jose D'Souza. He's been an absolute blessing throughout the season. He broke the record, actually, for most 180s hit in a Premier League campaign. And I think it'll be a very good one to watch in the future. Yep, so if he learns to count, uh, it's all going to go forward from there. Uh, Michael Van Gerwen is defeated in yet another semi-final after his glory years are behind him. It's difficult, isn't it, Rob? I mean, Michael Van Gerwen had that run, didn't he, in about 2019, where I think he went 50 games on TV on beat and was just winning major after major after major. And every one you went into, it was almost like, if Van Gerwen's in the tournament, he's going to win it. That fear and that edge of Michael Van Gerwen seems to just have gone over the past few years. Nobody's scared of him anymore. And losing is seemingly becoming a habit for him. And something that was very telling for me was that after every time he's lost, he'll refuse to do interviews uh, for the TV crew. He'll be too upset to do them. He'll be fuming. You can see it on his face. When he lost on Friday night in the semi-final of the Premier League, he seemed okay. He seemed almost content. I mean, is it easy to get up and throw darts in the morning when you know you're sleeping in silk sheets and all that sort of stuff? Has he just... Has he achieved everything he wants to? Does he have the same fire burning that these young guns do? I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Michael Van Gerwen will win more majors. He probably has another 10, 15 left in him. But I think that era of dominance at the highest level is probably gone. I don't think he's going to win every single tournament like he used to. And I suppose it sews up in a way just how good Phil Taylor was. I mean, he won 16 world championships. That's mental when you put it into context. Yeah. Uh, final uh, darts question. Nathan Aspinall just missed out on becoming a Premier League champion for the next season on the bounce as he bowed out in the other semi-final. He did. A shame for Nathan Aspinall because he's been excellent all season. He's been top of the league at points and he came so close last year when he lost out in the final to Glenn Duran. This year, he was very close to bagging himself in another final, and he just missed out against D'Souza. But he can hang his, hold his head high. He's performed very well. And it seems like a while ago since he won that UK Open, but he's only 28. Very, very young for a darts player. He's not quite in his prime yet. He's got 
maybe two more decades. That's the glory of darts, isn't it? In football or in boxing, you've got such a short career. In darts, because they can go up to about 60, you've got decades to make an impact. And Nathan Aspel has got decades to win more majors. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to be talking all about it on the Sports Zone in, in years to come, James. Uh, let's talk football now. Uh, both our local clubs uh, win European action in, in European uh, finals. We'll start with Manchester United, James. Uh, they played uh, Villa, Villarreal um, and lost on penalties 11 10. Um, what, what did you make of it? You know, a fascinating final. Yeah, it wasn't the most thrilling, was it? I mean, people are saying that Villarreal are a terrible side because they're seventh in La Liga. They're not a bad side, Villarreal. I don't think they're the side they used to be because they used to quite frequently get into Champions Leagues. But Manchester United should really be winning that, shouldn't they? Hmm. A European Cup final. We all we, we thought it was written in the stars, wasn't it, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Oh, back off the 1999 Champions League final, scoring that amazing winning goal so late against Bayern Munich. We thought it was only right they get some European honours as a Manchester United manager but it's a side that I don't want to say seems content to lose but just doesn't have the fire under it the fire wasn't there and I don't know how the fire isn't there on such a big stage Rob I mean it, it just mesmerises me that the fact that they just can't well mesmerises probably isn't the right word it just astounds me that they can't seem to get the motivation in such a massive game I think it's pressure James I, th- I think we it was like I say set up in the stars uh, with, with what happened uh, previously in United's history and for me, James, they just seem to lack that edge. In a European Cup final, you need your team to play on the edge to give you that extra 1% in that big game which brings the trophy home. And to me, Manchester United didn't have that on on uh, Wednesday night. They huffed and they puffed and they, and they tried, but they just hacked that lack of quality. I think it's the word you're looking for. Quality at important moments. It's good to have quality all the time, but especially in European Cups, Cup final matches, you need that little bit extra. And I, and I felt this Man United team didn't have that. And that is why, unfortunately, we huffed and we puffed, but we weren't able to blow uh, the Villarreal house down. We went down to penalties. And to be fair, all the penalties were very, very good. I think the Man United penalties, you know, apart from the De Gea one at the end, but we've got to be, uh, you know, realistic. David De Gea is there to, to save the penalties, not to score them. So, unfortunately, he missed the the, the crucial penalty and that resulted in, in, in the win. But looking at the, the Man United's quality of penalty, James, I don't think you can fault them there. No, absolutely not. Manchester United, the whole team took brilliant penalties in there. And David De Gea at the end of the day isn't somebody who's used to kicking a ball into an net. He's usually used to stopping the ball from going into the net. And I think maybe a lot of the criticism that he got was unwarranted. I mean, did you blame him for the first goal in particular, Rob? And what did you make of the fact that he didn't save any of the penalties? Because I think the statistics showed he, he's not been able to save the last 25 or something like that. I mean, penalties are very hard to save. What is he getting the sticky dessert? I mean, does he deserve this stick? Well, you've got. I think you've got. You've got to look at it as if, if I've got the stat here that. United have lost six out of the last seven penalty shootouts. And I think, what like you said, he's, he's not saved a penalty in 26. So it would have taken a brave decision by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to say, look, David, let's put another person in goal for the penalties. Because it would have been a, a crucial moment in the game. Dean Henderson would have been there, ready to ready to go into in the in front of the in the in the post to do it. Would he have saved more penalties than than the Haya would have in that situation? To be fair, 
De Gea didn't get anywhere near him, any of them. It was a bit like watching uh, Peter Shilton in the in the nineteen ninety World Cup in Italy. Uh, didn't get anywhere near the German ones at all. So for for me, I'm thinking it would have been a brave decision for Ole to 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 swap him over. And hindsight is is a wonderful thing. Um, but you know, big things like that win 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 European Cup finals, big decisions. It would have been a a serious pie in the face for Ollie if he'd have got it wrong. Uh, but he would have been a he would have been the best manager in the world if he if it if it you know turns out right. Well, a hundred percent, Robert would have been a risk. But do managers not need to make risks in champ in Europa League finals and big fixtures like that? Well, they do. I suppose they do, could James, because you know you're looking at your manager to to make tactical decisions which are going to benefit your team and he he's obviously looked at that situation and he thinks David De Gea don't forget David De Gea is a Spanish number one goalkeeper he's not an average Joe goalkeeper he's, he's a very very good goalkeeper but in the penalty shootout situation is would Dean Henderson being the better goaler to go in that would that would have been the big question for me and I obviously we're looking back now and we're thinking yeah he would have been better but it would have been a big decision to do that. And do I think Ollie's got enough of that in the tank for him? Because because don't forget, Man United aren't winning continuously. I don't think United won a trophy in four years. I might be right about that. So he hasn't got credits in the bank. So if he doesn't, if he gets the decision wrong, then that could cost him his job. If he had won leagues and things before, then it might have been a different story. But, it was a it was a decision which he didn't make, and ultimately it cost us. Most certainly, Rob. I mean, did you blame David De Gea for the first goal? Well, I think it's one of them where with a, with a goalkeeper you should be beaten from there, but the defence as well. That's another problem you got to ask for. Danny Maguire out injured. Uh, Harry Maguire, sorry, out injured. It would have been you know a bit of a problem with the defence. Uh, I think United missed him. He's United's leader. And without him in the team, we we didn't quite look solid enough to to think we we should we wouldn't have conceded, but he wasn't fit. He's probably looking at the England situation in a couple of weeks' time. He was on the bench. We could have thrown him on, uh, but it's one of them. I suppose we're we're looking to win the game in in the in the extra time, aren't we? So if we were already in front and we were looking to sort of see it out, we might have thrown him on. Uh, but yeah, difficult decision. I'm part of the goalkeepers' union, me James. So I'm, I'm not going to put any any sort of uh, blame under here unless it's a unless it's a, a gimme. Well, certainly. I mean, if this was his last kick of a football as Manchester United, do you think he'll get the credit he deserves? Yeah, well, he's been he's been a fantastic goalkeeper for Man United in a in a very ordinary team. And I think he's won, is he play with the year sort of three and three times maybe in the last few years. And, and that proves that he is a very good player. He's been our best player. He's kept United in so many games. But father time catches up with everyone, doesn't it? And the next generation is coming through. And is it time for him to, to step aside and, and go to, to Real Madrid? Because Man United have some fantastic options at, at goalkeeper. Now, it's not a weak position for us. So is is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer thinking we we've we've got strength in this area. We don't particularly need David De Gea because we've got the likes of Henderson coming through, and it, it could be an option for for Ole. Will will he continue stay at Man United? We'll have to wait and see. Transfer market in the in the summer is always interesting. Um, we'll have to kind of see what what goes on there. I think Man United's 
uh, tactic will be to strengthen uh, the squad and will sort of David Haye be used as a sacrifice in that in that mission we'll have to wait and see I mean he could well be I mean Manchester United this season second in the Premier League lost a semi-final of the FA Cup lost the final of the Europa League has it been a good season because we've got, done so well in these tournaments or has it been a bad season because we've not crossed the line in any of them mm, it's, 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 it's interesting thought that James um, we, we've got to think about Man United winning things and in the Premier League You've got Man City here, head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, we are the sort of the, the best of the rest, but the gap is still quite large. When when you look at the the squad City have managed to create in Europe, in in the Europa League, we, we've shown flashes. Uh, we we've seen sort of you know good performances. Really, it's not all been bad. We to get to a final and be one penalty shootout away. Well, no, not just one penalty shootout, one penalty spot kick away. Uh, from from winning it shows that we are going in the right direction, James. But is it is it acceptable to be on a journey at the moment rather than be at the destination? Do we think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has had enough time to mould this side and enough money? That's the the key question for me because we've had a bit of a turbulent season with the off the field with the Super League and the uh, the Glazer ownership putting their sort of foot in the mouth as it as it were regarding the the, the Super League application you know has only been able to express himself and buy the players that that he wants to take this club to that next level another interesting off season because obviously man united fans won't switch off won't switch off in the off season james that they'll be looking at what actions take place to give all the players he needs. Uh, and you're hoping, obviously, lessons all been learned, even though if they do spend 100 million, things won't change. They'll still, obviously, fans will still have the right to, to, to voice their concerns about what's going on off the field. But if Ollie can get three and four players in, and we quality players, and we can spend a couple of hundred million pounds on it, and bring a better quality of player into the squad, it means we've got a better chance to compete on all four fronts next season. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, you talk there about building in better players. We're linked to Sancho for what seems like the 700th season in a row. <laughs> Do you there's a chance we'll actually get him this time? Well, he's a good player. He's a good player, and he, he knows where the goal is. But where does he fit into this Man United team at the moment? He's, he's lucky looking at Ratchford. Um, you're looking at Fernandez. Um, you're looking at players like that. Who will he will he, will he displace them? Um, that's the big question for for me. You know, it, it, it's difficult for for me. It's not that isn't the position Man United need to need to strengthen. It's your midfield. You've got Fred and McTominay, who huff and puff, James, but aren't the Man United midfielders that this team needs. McTominay is a work in progress. We don't know where he'll be sort of five years down the line. For now, we need a, a couple of strong midfield players who are going to run the blood to water and be creative. I can't give you names, James. I can't say, yeah, go and get him because we, we don't know who's on the market. But Man United have, have lots of scouts all over the word, world and they're able to, to monitor these people. All he knows that that midfield is, is, is the problem. If you can get two and three players in that area, world-class players, and it will cost them money. You're not going to get these players on the cheap, James. You're going to have to throw big money at them to get good players in that in that area. 
you get a couple of decent midfielders in that position, it turns Man United's fortune round, and then we can look at competing with City week in, week out. Yeah, you've got to hope that these international players look at Manchester United and think and can see that we're a working process, can see that things are getting better for us, and can hopefully hop on, I suppose, the project that we've got going of bringing Manchester United back to the glory years, because we will get there. It's just going to take a bit of time. But moving over to Manchester City, this seemed like their best opportunity to win a Champions League final, Rob. Chelsea haven't been that good this season. They haven't, if we're going to be blatantly honest. Manchester City have been the best team in Europe, probably. This was an unbelievable opportunity for Manchester City, and Pep Guardiola just tactically got it wrong. Yeah, Man City fans heart, must be heartbroken, really, because they have had a fantastic season. Uh, let, let's be fair, they, they've they've played some good football, and it comes down to the biggest moment against the team. Chelsea are are a good side, but they're not a super side. They're not. They shouldn't really be sort of putting the pressure on Man City, but for Thomas Tur- Turkle to to beat Pep three times in this season since he's a goal from Frank Lampard, Lampard is unbelievable. Has he got the voodoo has he got the voodoo on Pep? That's the big question for me. I watched the game and for me, Chelsea played it right. Very compact. Not much space for, for the likes of De Barnia uh, and Sterling to run into. And lots of sideways passing from Man City. There wasn't much sort of goal forward. And then sort of Chelsea sort of sucked him in and hit him on the break. And that's what, what kind of happened. Um, and how does Pep how does Pep go against that? Because teams will watch that European Cup final, realise that Man City haven't got an ab- the ability to break teams down if they do that. You need your midfielders to be sort of switched on and disciplined and not get sucked out of position, which is exactly what Chelsea did, and City weren't able to sort of counter that, James. So teams will realise that that's how you play against Man City. So Pep might have to change his ways, which is difficult, really, because Pep Guardiola has played some fantastic football with Man City over the last few years, um, and they'll just have to adapt. But it, it will be interesting. The selection wasn't the greatest. No Rodri... Uh, Fernandinho came on, came on late. Uh, that that raised a few eyebrows for for the City faithful because it seemed like they went all out attack, but just weren't sharp enough to to make it happen. Yeah, I would agree with you entirely, Rob. And Pep Guardiola. I mean, I suppose that Tuchel just just has got the better of him. Just tactically can outmatch Pep Guardiola and knows how to beat him. And that says a lot because psychologically, I think that'll damage Pep a bit. But I mean, he's won Champions League with Barca. He's won it with Bayern. We always said it would have been amazing if he could pull off the hat-trick in Manchester City. And it would cement his legacy as, you know, arguably the greatest manager of all time. What if he can't do it with Manchester City, Rob? Well, that's that's a big question, James. It's a big question because obviously Man City, we need, well, City need to win a European Cup final and win a European Cup to be kind of highlighted as one of the European elite. Even in looking at domestic sort of football, our English um, royalty in football, Liverpool, us, Chelsea now have won two, right? Not Suarez have won two. Aston Villa have won one. So Man City not to win anything is, is a massive problem uh, for them. Um, and how much longer will the Man City owners continue to throw money at this? Um, because obviously Pep has a, has a track record of winning if he can't get City over the line, it becomes a problem because if 
they'll think, do we stick or do we twist? And if you twist and get someone else in it who isn't as good as Pep Guardiola, then your wheels might fall off quite quickly because you've got a lot of lot of players on a lot of money who might not want to play in that new system. So it will be very interesting to see what happens with, with that. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, we've got another off-season for them to, to throw off a couple of hundred million at the problem again and see what happens next year. Yeah, most definitely. I think that's what we're going to have to do. But something else I think we need to break down right now is the England squad. And I believe you've got that in front of you. There's 33 names named for that provisional squad. Gareth Southgate's going to have a tough time breaking that down. But are there any names in there in particular that you don't think will make the end squad? Well, it's going to be interesting, really, because obviously looking at the, the, the squad, James, you've got quality all over, haven't they? And to break it down from 33 uh, to 22 is a, is a big ask because obviously you're looking at sort of the, the squad and how they performed all through the, uh, the season. And, you know, international football is, is a different kettle of fish, isn't it? We, we, we need to be have the top players um, available all you know at their peak and after a long season in the Premier League you might not get that and we're, we're looking at this team like you said uh, the goalkeeping situation Dean Henderson uh, it'll be Dean Henderson v Jordan Pickford that'll be the, the top two uh, for me you look looking through your defenders a lot of talk about Trent Alexander-Arnold not making it um, but we looked at sort of uh, good players like Reese James who was fantastic for Chelsea on, on Saturday you know, will he get in front of him? That's the big question. We've got Harry Maguire there. We've got John Stones there. And Kieran Trippier, you know, just won a, Euro, won a league championship in Spain. He, he should be he should be in contention. But will he, will he get that opportunity? Because he's not in the Premier League, James. That's, the, that's the, big, the big question for me. What about you? I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? England have always been a, t- a nation, really, where talent stays in the country. Mm. We don't get many players going abroad. I mean, Gareth Bale, I know he's Welsh, but he went to Real Madrid and that seemed unusual. David Beckham, I think, a few years ago, obviously. Well, I don't know. Of course, he went to, like, you know, your AC Milan, your Real Madrid, etc. Michael Owen uh, played for Real Madrid, but you don't really get that many players from England going abroad. No, you're right. You're right, James. And and, and it's been to the detriment of, of previous England squads that we haven't been technical enough but looking at this team with this squad available we've got now in that midfield area Declan Rice Mason Mount uh, Calvin Phillips you know all very good players technically good players um, Julie Julie Bellium from Brescia Dortmund these players are the Euro, they are equivalent to any any European players they have got the, the ability and the technique to, to, to play a game out when before we were a bit sort of kick and rush merchants, weren't we? But the, these players can play and, and that's the good thing for Gareth Southgate because he knows he's got players he can trust and that and that's the important thing. Um, we're looking at our forward line as well, James, which which is pretty impressive. The likes of Harry Kane, uh, Marcus Ratchford, uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He, you know, he, he, I think, will be an important part of that striking force because anything happens to Harry Kane, he's the guy and he's been playing well for, for Everton, scoring goals and, you know, championships like this are kind of made for, for people who just come in uh, and, and make a difference. Yeah, definitely, Rob. I mean, Manchester, uh, England rather, have a lot of strikers who know where the goal is, don't they? We've got 
some fierce, fierce goal scorers. And I think this could really be our year. I mean, we came close, didn't we, in the World Cup? A lot of people thought it was going to come on that year. It didn't quite, but it really does feel like there's momentum behind this England squad. And with a bit more experience at the highest level, maybe we can push over and win the European Championships. We're going in. It's not far away now. Only a couple of weeks. I really think it could be a year for us. I think you're right, you're right there, James. Look, looking at the players, Jack Jack Grealish from Aston Villa been fantastic for them. Uh, Phil Foden from Man City. We all know what kind of talent he's got. He'll be looking for a big uh, tournament. You're looking at obviously other players as well, and people like Mason Greenwood. Will it be too early for him? Will, will Gareth Southgate want want to pick him with the attacking talent available? Ollie Watkins at Aston Villa is the same. You know, you're thinking they are fantastic players. They will big make a big difference if they are available. But Gareth Southgate only has 26 spots to to pick, and obviously with the formation he plays, he can only have so many sort of players at his disposal. So we'll be interested to see what happens in the in the next few weeks. Um, looking at you know further ahead, they've got a friendly against Austria on the 2nd of June and then Romania on the 6th of June. It'd be two opportunities there for Gareth Southgate to to look at that team and play and see what happens. Most certainly, Rob. I mean, I can't wait for the European Championships. Get these friendlies out of the way, work everything out, and then, unfortunately, seven players will have to be dropped out, but we'll take a fantastic squad to the Euros. It's going to be it's going to be amazing. Love the love the competition. Love the you know the how the nation gets behind it as well, James as well. Everybody you know gets super excited about it. That's how memories are made, aren't they? Euro '96 and you know all the flags uh, you know waving and the excitement, especially now because it's all over kind of kind of Europe. We we get a, a, everyone gets a taste of, of the tournament, don't they? Most certainly, Rob. Everybody's interested. Everybody's invested. And after COVID nineteen, fans are back. It's going to be a fun for the whole of Europe. So, let's talk Rugby League now. We're joined by Paul Whiteside from the Devil in Detail. Paul, so let's start with Souls Red Devils. Uh, defeated against Warrington at the AJ Bell Stadium. They lost 18 points to 62. Um, talk us through the game, Paul. Talk us through the game. It's a good on that, Rob. Um, uh, well, we were behind the eight ball from the from the start, really. Warrington cut us to pieces early doors. I mean, Gareth Wibbert Widdop was, was amazing. I thought in that game, he, uh, I think he's probably best half back in the league at the moment. The, the way he's playing, the form he's, he's in, and that early stage, I think eleven minutes there, we'd let three tries in, and you, you, it was game over really in that that first eighteen minutes. We did battle back, and we got a, a decent try against the run of play really from Ken C or Warrington were attacking, and, and Ken went sort of eighty yards into to score for us. But that first half, Warrington just just dominated it. And when we did get a foot in, in the in the game, Levet got that try, excellent try he scored as well off a nice pass from Morgan Esquire. We conceded a daft penalty, went behind again and then Warrington scored right on the break, another clock off from us. So a lack of concentration I thought throughout the game. Very, very poor defending. Um if you want me to be honest, I think the, the performance, especially in the second half, was was totally unacceptable. I thought it was terrible. I thought too many people missing one-on-ones, too many people going missing. And to concede 62 points when the supporters have waited 14 months to start coming back to matches to serve up something like that, I thought was very, very poor. I know we had injuries, but we had plenty of experienced players out there who, who should have been been good enough to, to do a job. And 62 points is an embarrassing scoreline. And, you know, some of the tries in the second half, I thought we, we just... Seemed to chuck the towel in a bit, really, for me, and that's disappointing. Really disappointing. I know Warrington were good, Warrington played well, but 
we've got to be better than that. We, we really have got to be better than that. And as I said, that second half just wasn't good enough, really, at all. I mean, Harvey Levette hobbled off as well. And I think he was probably one of our best players on uh, on uh, Thursday night. And that was disappointing to see him go off because that'll be a worry for, for, uh, for Richard Marshall. Um, and other than that, I don't think there was many other players who, who came out of the game with any kudos, really. I thought Reese Williams and Ken Seal were, were solid for us, but the pack, you know, really were second best in, in that game. Morgan Escudier, I thought, had a bit of an in-and-out game. Looked good at in patches on attack, but defence, you know, left a lot to be desired. And it was just, like you're saying, talk you through, it was, it's difficult because it's all Warrington. It was just all Warrington throughout the, throughout that second half, you know, dominating us completely. And, you know, they, 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 they deserved the, the, the victory and deserved the 60 points they got. Yeah, I spoke to Richard Marshall uh, after the game, and this is what we had to say. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, is it? Obviously, you being a sort of a head coach, it must be a difficult position to be in sort of right now in that changing room. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, you know, it's not an easy place. It's, it's easy when you're winning and, and, and winning well. Uh, we didn't compete. We got in the fight. We got in the fight in the first half, and we, and we got it back to. To, to where we had some momentum and then and then we conceded that try. I think Jake Mamo just 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 um scored before half time and that again there's some there's some performances and that we've had previously that have probably come back to, to bite us there uh some of our experiences and we've got to be stronger as a team mentally um physically we are busted um and I don't doubt the effort and, and, and the attitude of our players um but at the same time, it's yeah, we, we we were way off. There was a big margin between those two teams. Yeah, the first fifteen minutes, Warrington scored three tries. Uh, was that down to the sort of us feeling the effects of sort of the tough games and injuries, or were just they just white hot? Yes, they were good, um, but I thought we made them look good. They got us down the short side a couple of times. I thought we could have defended a lot better there, down the short side. Um, Yes, th- there was a bit of a hangover from from the Wigan game. You know, the short turnaround, the three games in 11 days has, has really caught up on our small squad. But listen, there's no excuses. We, we You know, we, we can't be losing by 60-odd points at home. That's, you know, we are better. Uh, we're a better team than, than that scoreline suggests. Um, but Warrington were good value for their for their how clinical they were in attack. We probably need to take some lessons from them as well. Yeah, uh, two obviously two good tries for us, and then conceding one just before and just after half time again. Must, must be a sort of frustration that because obviously you say you're working on it, but you don't seem to be able to, to get the right sort of answer at the moment. No, that's a frustrating uh, element because we, we are, you know, the players are, are, are good. We, we've we've been in and around wins, and, and we know what he's like. Uh, we know what we have to do to 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 complete and compete in games, um, but it's it's just the workload we're having to do. And that obviously, you know, we had two players off the field. I think what we were down to eleven men at one point, and it's it, it's just too big of an ask, and especially against Warrington. Yeah, errors and, and Simbins, and obviously Warrington intensity in that second half. Uh, what what did you sort of learn from your team in that second half? Obviously, under the, under the pump a lot. I didn't learn a great deal, uh, if, if we're being honest. I did I, I did against Wigan. I thought uh, we learned quite a lot there about the group. And um, there's some reasons today to, to suggest it would have been difficult for us to, to go out and win that game. But um, 
we, we needed to start the game a lot better and and, our, and the half uh, of the second that sorry the start of the second half um yeah we, we were way off um there's some lessons to be learned out of that performance as well uh and that's what we'll be doing we'll still be looking at that we won't change anything we'll be reviewing uh, and we'll have an honest appraisal about our our efforts obviously with all the injuries uh, has this week off sort of come out at the right time for you? Yeah, as yeah, I think I think so. I, I don't think we'd have been able to put a team out next week, and uh, just with the amount of injuries we've got, um, just hope that Callum and uh, Morgan and Tui and, and Harvey are okay off the back of that because you know we, we need we need them players. So that was Richard Marshall talking to himself after the game. Paul, he he was disappointed. He kind of like talked about how we've got 10 players out injured at the moment and it's really taken a toll on the squad. Do, do you see it that way? Yeah, I, well, I do. I, it has taken a toll on the squad, but without calling Richard Marshall out, I would like a coach to come out and, and, and be disappointed and and sort of show that anger and show that passion. That that reassure me a little. I don't know if other supporters feel that way because that, that's what I want to see. I want to see a, a coach who's, who's angry about that performance and I don't know... It's difficult because Richard Marshall's under a bit of pressure at the moment and I feel for him because he didn't deserve that. Um, I'm not blaming him at all for that performance. It's the, the players have got to take some responsibility for that. And If it had been me, I think I'd have been spitting chips at the the, the, um, the interviewer at the end. I'd have been really angry. But obviously, Richard might be a different character to me. I, I don't know. But I was disappointed with the performance and, and, and a bit angry as well, really, because like I said, I felt for the supporters, they'd waited that long to see see a match and we, we saw a really good game against Wigan and then to, to, to come up with that, it's, it's disappointing and, um, you know, I just hope we can bounce back from that now. We've got two really difficult away games now and I know there's been a lot of talk in the press about us playing the top six this season, which is fair dues. We've played Saints twice, we've played Catalan away, we've played, played Wigan, so yeah, I accept that. But now comes the big test. We've got two games against Hull KR and Huddersfield, both away from home, I accept, but two games against sides that didn't finish in the top six last season. So these are sides that we're expected to compete with. So for me, we need to get a result. We can't afford to go into our next home game against Leeds having won one from ten. I think that would be really disappointed if we have. So we've got a pivotal two weeks coming up now and that we need a reaction from the players and I think Richard Marshall will be looking, looking for that. But I watched his interview on Sky and he was very, very disappointed and it must be difficult for a coach sometimes because he doesn't want to come out and, and say something and get himself in trouble and things like that, does he? So, you know, I'm pretty sure he'd have kept it in-house and told the players how he felt. So, it's no use dwelling on it though, Rob. You can't, you can't dwell and lick your wounds, can you? You've got to get on with it and, and, and come up with a result the week after. And luckily for us, we've got a break now for two weeks and you know a bit of soul-searching there, get a few bodies back and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll bounce back. Yeah, you mentioned obviously they've got two weeks off uh, before the next game against Hulkingston Rovers away. How, how does Richard Marshall fix this up? Obviously, we've watched Salford for, for for years and years. I've seen Salford sides who are worse than this one. I, I don't have any, any worries about us sort of flirting with relegation. This team will click eventually. But with all the injuries and, and obviously lack of form, um, how does Richard Marshall turn it around? Do you know what worries me sometimes as well? The suspensions. I know you get injuries, but we've had a few suspensions as well. And you can come to a point in the season where you start running out of games and you start panicking. Because as I said before, there you've got these two games. Now, once you've played them, we've played 10 matches and you sort of get towards the halfway stage. And if we've only won one match, then yeah, I think we are in a relegation scrap. So sometimes you can, the more games you lose, your confidence drops and players 
you get injuries. Don't always want to hold their hand up and play them because you know when you're winning games, everybody wants to play every week, don't they? But once you get on that bad run, confidence drops, and you can get in a bit of a hole, can't you? You start looking up and thinking, "Blime, it's a long way up that now," and people might sign for somebody else next season, and you know, you know, you know, it can spiral, can't it? So I mean, at the moment, you know, no disrespect to Lee, but they're really struggling, aren't we? But if, if Lee weren't in there, I'd be, I'd be fearing a bit for the worst. But we've still got to go away from home against Lee, so I'm not counting my chickens. We've got to start winning matches sooner rather than later. And like I said, we've got these two away games now, and, and we need to win. And Hull KR is going to be a tough game. They've had, they beat Lee today. They had a good a couple of other good results recently. They've won four matches now. We've only won one. Wakefield have won today. Well, Sunday we're recording this out. Wakefield won at weekend, so they've won two. So we're not behind the eight ball yet, but sides have started to get results. So, you know, we don't want that a gap to develop, you know, and, and us and, and Lee being marooned at the bottom. So it's vital that we get a result. For me, Richard Marshall just needs to get things back to basics. Yeah, hopefully we can get a few players back for the for the Hulk AI game, and I'm sure we will. And I'm sure we'll be a lot better than we was against, was against Warrington. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, obviously the pressure is building on Richard Marshall. Is is the is the options that Paul King have has now give Paul uh, give uh, Richard Marshall a bit extra money to spend on on players to re to re sort of jig his squad, or are we thinking you know a couple of weeks nothing changes, new coach comes in. What what's the what what's the thought process behind them two options? My personal yeah. thoughts is um, no. I, the pressure will always develop on people, Rob, because it's a, it's a difficult sport, and you, you're talking like twelve jobs in the Super League, and it's a, you know, it's the Premier competition. So the team that's struggling, pressure will always build because it develops from supporters, don't it? Supporters' expectations. For me personally, no, I wouldn't sack Richard Marshall. I'll get rid of Richard Marshall. I think for me, if I was the chairman, I'd give him the full season and give him a chance to prove himself because he deserves the chance. I mean, half of those players he didn't sign anyway. He's been, I think, he's been really unlucky this season with injuries, with suspensions. He's not really been able to put his full strength side out. He's had to change things. And people have said, oh, he's a bit of a tinker man. He's changed this round. Yeah, fair dues. He might have been. But a lot of the changes have been forced because people have been injured and, and suspended. I mean, some of the suspensions have been a bit daft. I mean, Dan Sargeson, really wholehearted player, done a bit of a daft thing the other week and got, got a three-game ban. That's not Richard Marshall's fault. And he's probably not Dan Sargeson's fault because it's where he plays the game. But all these things sort of hamper you. Joe Burgess, cracking winger. But got a, t- a tough injury so yeah I think once you've got your full strength side I mean for me I don't know who I'm going to play at full back I'm still not convinced with Morgan Escudet so will Dan Sargison drop in there I'm not sure but if you're looking at a back line with Sargison Burgesson Reese Williams we've got some cracking players there we've got a decent standoff I'm not so sure about the halfbacks we still don't know who, who his best six and seven is but Andy Akers is a really good hooker if we can keep him fit He's, he's struggled with injuries as well. And that that really does hamper, you know, when, you, when your spine's changing all the time. And I'll tell you one player we've missed this season, for me, the biggest miss has been probably Niall Evolds. Mm. I mean, for him dropping out of the side, Niall was a super finisher, a super support player, a real match winner, you know, could do th- magic things, back up and score great. So we really missed him this season. And I think we've missed Flash as well. With Flash going, I know Elijah Taylor's coming in, played at hooker against... Um, against Warrington, cracking pair of hands, but he's not really a hooker. We need to get him back at loose forward. And, and again, that wasn't Richard's fault because he, he didn't have anybody else to play there. So, so yeah, I'm fully behind Richard Marshall. He's, he knows his stuff and, I, and I'm pretty confident he's going to get things right. But I understand that, that people do panic, don't they? It's just the way of sport these days, in particular the last couple of seasons. You know, we've been, 
we've been to two finals, haven't we? And had, had, had some success. So over the last sort of four years, so we've had three decent seasons, haven't we? So um, you know, people are people's expectations get 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 risen, don't they? So let's just you know take each game as it comes. Let's get a result, and I'm sure we'll start performing. Yeah, we've got about a minute to, to go, Paul, a minute and a half. So let's talk about Swinton Lions, our other, other club in the area. They lost to Batley, 26 points to 12. Um, bit bit of a tough place to go, Batley. Yeah, you dropped it on me there, giving Swinton a minute and a half. Uh, <laughs> they deserve more than that. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. They're uh, uh, they're having a tough season at the moment. I mean, did did well at Batley. I think they were 10-0 up at one stage in that game. Um, there was a sim bin, I think, with 15 minutes to go. Luke Warworth, I think it was, went off. And that's probably been a big decision in that game. Batley have come back there, scored two tries late on. Jody Broughton, former soccer player, scored. So that game was on a knife edge until the last sort of 10, 15 minutes. It's always a tricky place to go. Batley, they've made a good start to the season. I think even though they've been beaten there, Swinton, that result will give them a bit of confidence going forward. They need to start picking up results sooner rather than later. And obviously at home at Haywood Road, they've got to start making that a fortress. Yeah, 30 seconds to go, Paul. They face York in the 1895 semi-final. Never know, Stuart Linton's men might be walking out of Wembley. I hope so. I really hope so for Swinton and their supporters. Um, you know, I know some really nice people down there at Haywood Road. Best of luck, lads, next weekend. I hope we go and smash York and, and get to Wembley. It'll be great to see Swinton Lions walking out of Wembley. And that's from a, a staunch Salford supporter. Yeah, I would say we all wish him luck on the sports zone this week. And I'm hopefully uh, they'll be they'll be celebrating uh, come this time next week. It's been a great show, Paul, talking all things sport in Salford. Really enjoyed it. Make sure that you tune in every week on the sports zone. Uh, and we'll be talking all things sport in Salford. Big thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week for more Salford Sporting Chat.